I had two options here. I could become a good teammate or I could become a bad teammate. Well, I could have stood in that ego and been like, you know what, I am good enough and I do deserve to start. Of course, you know, I decided to be a good teammate. When I decide something, I decide I'm gonna become the best at it. So I decided I was gonna become the best bench player that ever played the bench in the whole wide world. Because if you're not a good leader on the bench, then you cannot call yourself a good leader on the field. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, we have a very special guest joining us. Abby Wambach is here with us on Skim from the Couch. She is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a FIFA World Cup champion, and a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Also, she hasn't slowed down in retirement. She is now a New York Times bestselling author and an equal pay activist. We first had the pleasure of meeting Abby when we spoke to her wife, Glennon Doyle, on this show in March, and we dragged her onto the podcast as well. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. It's a good one. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled and honored to be with you all on three different couches. <laughs> so before we jump into our first question, I have to tell you, I was looking at our prep for this and there was one bullet in here that just really made me laugh because <laughs> I have to share it, which is that you used to have a special card that got you a free burrito a day from Chipotle, but it stopped working when you retired. Mm-hmm. That seems passive aggressive. For sure. Chipotle, what the F? Yeah. So when I first got this card, it was, gosh, it must have been 10 years ago now. And, you know, it was like the gold card, Chipotle for life. Like essentially my name is on it. And you guys don't know how I go way back with Chipotle from like the early days. And I mean, I would get a burrito a day. You guys. We are both creatures of habits. I respect this. Yeah, it was crazy. And this is before we really knew how many calories were in each burrito bowl that I would make or burrito early days. And so then, yeah, of course, when I retired, I was super excited to still be able to get one free burrito a week for a year, but they never really checked up on it. But then I think when I got a family, when I married Glennon and attained three children, that, you know, $15 meal turned into a $65 meal or $70 meal for the whole family. And Chipotle was like, I don't know if we're going to keep floating this for her. So (laughs) it was a good run while it lasted. I'm sorry that you've struggled with that, but it did make me laugh as I read the prep. So we're going to jump into our very first question that we'd like to ask everybody. It's just skim your resume. Skim my resume. It's so funny because when you retire, that's like That's essentially what I've had to do over the last four or five years of my life since retiring from playing on the national team. And if people don't really know, I played for a long time on our women's national team. So skimming my life, I'm the youngest of seven children. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I went to the University of Florida and played soccer there for 
Four Seasons, where after I was drafted number two, by the way, just remember this, folks, sometimes you don't get drafted number one and you can still succeed. I was drafted number two out of college to go play for a team called the Washington Freedom. The best player in the world at the time, Mia Hamm, played on that team and it really changed my life because we were able to develop a connection that then transferred into me getting called into the national team and playing on the national team and scoring goals on the national team. And then I had a pretty long career representing this country. I won a gold medal. I won a couple gold medals, actually. I won a FIFA Women's World Cup, a FIFA World Cup, I should say. It doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl. That's pretty awesome. In my retirement, I have kind of taken on this activism role that when I play, ironically, when I played, I was a little bit more like just go and do my job. And we were going to show our activism rather than talk about it. But when you quit playing, you got to actually transfer that (laughs) because I can't play anymore. I can't show it in the ways that I used to. So I've transitioned into becoming a public speaker and an activist and a parent and a wife. And that is my skim. That's a great skim. What is it like to be really good at something when you're young? Because I have no clue. Yeah. I mean, it's confidence building. You know, I, I felt like okay, I know that I'm good at this thing over here. But I think, you know, all of us have our little things, right? Like no matter what kind of place we grew up or family we grew up in, or what kind of trauma we we experienced as a child, because we all do. Some of us feel like we're unlovable, my case in particular. Some of us were neglected. Some of us were overparented. Like we all have problems inside of our family dynamics that for me, really allowed me to and gave me the courage to propel in this kind of an individualistic career. So when I was young, I kind of was a very big risk taker. I was a free spirit is what they called me. I think that's what they call children who don't follow the rules as much as their parents want them to. And, you know, I think that The other side of that coin is I was really trying to get the attention of my parents, right? So the very thing that I might have felt trauma or hardship from in my childhood is the very thing that made me successful. So I have to always remember that, you know, like as much as I, as the youngest of seven children, you know, as much as all of us wanted the attention of our parents, I do think that kind of parenting actually shaped me and and allowed me to explore this competitiveness inside uh, and this drive and this ambition to go after what I needed and what I wanted. Um, And so I give a lot of credit to that form of parenting and to that trauma. Um, You know, my parents did the best they they could. I I don't blame them. I'm glad that they had seven children because otherwise I wouldn't be here, you know? I think everybody is good at something. Some people just don't get to do it on a grand stage. There isn't like the Olympics for gardening, right? Like, I think that we have to be conscious of the fact that I just kind of got lucky, right? Women's sports and women's rights has been in the conversation for, and especially for women's sports for at least the last 40 years because of Title IX. And you know, when I got onto the women's soccer scene, Mia Hamm and the 99 World Cup team, they kind of redefined what women's sports could be. 
And quite frankly, it's the reason why I continued forward in my soccer career because I was like, oh, hell yeah, I want to do that. You know, long answer to to a good question. When you were young, did you always want to be a professional soccer player? Like, did you know that you were that good? Yeah. So for a little perspective, when I was young, five, six years old, our women's national team was just beginning. It was like the first and second year. And basically those women, they had to pay to go play for our women's national team. They had to find their way there. They had to pay for their gear. And so there was no real opportunity. So when I was younger, I wanted to be And I never figure skated, but it was the only thing that I watched in terms of the Winter Olympics. I watched figure skating. I thought figure skating was like the coolest sport, you know, because there wasn't women's soccer and there wasn't women's basketball to watch on television during the Olympics. And then as I got older, women's sports got a little bit more popular, got a little bit more popular. Soccer blew up in the United States, but not having the representation of women's soccer was one of those things that I just kind of always felt like I was just playing a sport, right? That I was kind of beating whatever system it was that us humans play down here. Like, how can I get to do this thing for as long as possible? And for a long time, I just wanted to go and play soccer so that I could get my college paid for. That was a really big goal for me as a young kid. Being that youngest kid, I didn't want my family to... um, have to pay for another tuition to go to college. It was my parents' dream to send all of us to college. They did. I was still able to get a full scholarship. So yeah, I think that it's really important to have people that look like you, that talk like you, that come from where you come from in all places of opportunity, whether it's at leadership tables or sports arenas or executive boards, there has to be representation in order for people to dream that they can actually be it because I am absolutely the outlier. I got lucky. I got very lucky. A lot of things fell into place for me. There's a physicality to the sport that requires a fearlessness that I do not have. I'm like the least athletic person, you know. And the idea of me diving in after a ball, like literally bouncing something off of my head, it sounds like the most absurd thing that I could ever do. And I'm so fascinated by how you have fearlessness, but then what are the moments that maybe you aren't as fearless? That's a good question. So I wouldn't ever call things fearless, fearless. There is always a presence of fear. I think that when you watch athletes play, there are often calculated risks that are always happening throughout the course of any athletic game, right? So when you see a professional athlete go into a severe, whether it be a tackle in football or or even a slide tackle in soccer or a diving header in soccer, this is a moment in time that they've played through, not just like in real life, a bunch of times, but in their minds a bunch of times. So everything that's happening, people don't think about athletes as artists, but truly at like the really core of it, when you are going to create a play, like to go and do something that it's never really been done exactly like that before, you have to have creativity, you have to be risk managing the entire time. What is the best case scenario? What is the best option? How are we gonna be most successful here? And then of course, this risk with your body, this is a this is a calculation that I oftentimes just went forward with. And I think because I was always a bigger woman than my opponents, 99% of the time, 
I was bigger in height and in weight. I knew that the physics of those situations would give me the upper hand. Now, this doesn't mean that I didn't have any fear inside of me. This doesn't mean that I was never wrong in my my calculation of this risk, but it does mean that for the most part, I felt a willingness to be a little bit more reckless with my body than other people. And unfortunately, I'm paying for that now. <laughs> I am I am paying for that now. But I do know that there is a certain kind of mental strength and mentality that I have had, that I had. And I, I probably still do have on some level. I don't know if over time I built a strength in, in that muscle or if I was just born with it. I want to talk Mia Ham. What was that moment like to meet and get to play with your idol? Yeah, you know, everybody always wonders what it will be like to have the conversation with their idol, with the person they've looked up to. And, you know, at 21 years old, I think is how old I was when I first met her. I had pictures of her up on my wall when I was 14, 15 years old. She was representative of everything that I wanted. I wanted to be the best player. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be in her position, but as Abby Wambach. It was never like, oh, I want to be Mia Hamm. But there I was, I walk into the locker room and there she was. And I was, of course, internally freaking out. Like, like you could imagine 21 year old kid meeting her idol. And, you know, she knew that I kind of came from a big family. So I think right off the bat, she and Mia has like a really, really great sense of humor, sometimes dry. Personally, she's an amazing human being, always thinking about everybody in the room. But professionally, You know, people don't, I think, even though they probably would say she's one of the greatest female athletes of all time, no question. I still think that they don't give her enough credit for how meticulous and specific of a tactician soccer player she was. Yes, she was a great goal scorer. Yes, she was a great dribbler. Yes, she was savvy. But Mia knows the game on a deep level that taught me And, you know, truly, I'm not like a tactician. I'm an emotional player. I'm like, let's go. We got this. And she's like, okay, here's where we need to be. You need to put your body here, face this way. Like, she's always thinking about those little details where I was just like, get me the ball, you know? And we worked so well together. You know, I attribute a lot of my success to the way that she embraced me as a young athlete and as a young player. She taught me just the uh, the right amount. And she also gave me the right amount of leeway to express myself and my individuality. What was it like going from playing in college to then joining the national team with people, not just Mia, but, but people that you have been looking up to, but then also probably, and I would be like very intimidated to be like, I'm the new person. Here's my chance. And also want to be a team player and be in it. How did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the the first answer is terrified. I was terrified to be at the same practice. And I remember my very first practice with the national team. When you show up to a professional situation, it's not like, all right, everybody circle up. It's like everybody kind of like slowly saunters in and puts their shin guards on, puts their cleats on. And when you're a professional, like they give you a little bit of time to warm up on your own. I knew like a few people there. So of course you like stick to who you know. And then we start playing this like 5v2. So it's 
basically two defenders are in the middle running around like chickens with their head cut off trying to get the ball away from the five other players. And I just remember like the speed of the ball that the women were playing with. I just, I, I kept going, turning in circles as a defender and you're never supposed to do that. Like, I mean, it's, it makes me giggle thinking back about that moment where I was so out of my own element. I was playing with legends. That is how that moment felt like, I do not belong here. Why am I here? This is absurd. What's going on? And one of the things I try to keep talking to my my daughters about, because they're kind of going through the young situations uh, in terms of soccer, you know, tr- continuing to try out for more elite teams. The mark of somebody who can make it the distance is somebody who can handle those moments over and over and over and over and over again, because truly there is no end. Like every single people are like, oh, you were a veteran on the national team for so long. I'm like, yeah, but I was still training every single day to be a starter. So that, that like level, the standard never goes down. You're always pushing. You're always trying to be better than you were the day before. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was terrifying. But at the end of the day, I remember that time really fondly because that was a self-defining moment. Like, how am I going to embrace these moments of needing to level up? Because how else do you grow? That's it. Like, you are always going to be faced with situations in your whole life, whether it be going from high school to college. And I'm not even talking about sports. I'm talking about like being in front of other people who are smarter than you, who are more senior than you, who are making more money than you or doing what you want to be doing. Like if you want to get to where you need to go, you're going to have moments of real uncomfort of unworthiness or you don't belong there. And women especially have this double dose of that, that we've been culturally like soaking up throughout our life that we don't belong. I remember wanting to go home. I remember trying to think of every opportunity to get out of there. Like these things are real life. It's a confrontation of you and yourself and what your dreams are and what you're made of. You're talking, I mean, about being comfortable with being uncomfortable and and resilience. And as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about when you were benched for the 2015 World Cup. You write about that experience a lot in your book, Wolfpack. Just walk us through, like, why were you benched? What was that like? You know, you at this point are a household name. So this is 2015. I'm 35 at the time. I know that this is going to be my last world championship with the United States. And I have yet to win a World Cup. I also have to, like, throw that in there because that's kind of an important factor. After we got through our group stage and into the knockout round stages, our coach and I, you know, our coaching staff and I sat down and we decided, and this is hard because, you know, for the previous year, I'm thinking I'm going to play. This is going to go like every other world cup has gone. I'm going to score and we're going to win. Like that's my mindset. Uh, And everybody has to have their mindset. We have to have imagery. Like that's part of the athletes process leading into big events like this. Uh, And so this conversation with the coaching staff is like, okay, we want you on the field at the end of the game. Like if we are, if we need to push for a goal, we need you in top form. And uh, if we need to hold a lead, we want you on the field. And in order for us to make sure you can be in the game at the end, we're going to have to bring you off the bench, right? You're not going to be able to be a starter because we don't think that you'll be able to go those 90 minutes. 
which was the correct call. Because <laughs> at 35, my legs were, were older than they were 10 years earlier. And when I had this conversation, it made sense. It was the right decision. I knew it was the right decision, yet I was still devastated because I have a healthy ego and I'm a competitor. And I also needed to just like trust that the other players on my team were going to be able to get us to a position that when I did get on the field at the end of the game, that we would be holding a lead rather than pushing, needing to push for a goal. So there was a lot of emotions going on, a lot of, you know, internal dialogue for myself. And I remember being in my hotel room that night, the game was the next day, and just really considering, you know, because I had two options here. I could become a good teammate or I could become a bad teammate. Which which path did I want to go down? Because as a competitor and as a player with an, a healthy ego, standing in that ego felt authentic on some level. I could have stood in that ego and been like, you know what? I am good enough and I do deserve to start. Yet when I played that out all the way to the end, I didn't see us winning down that option because I knew that if I was a jerk, a bad teammate, not agreeing with the coach's decision, that that could create some dissension in the team and some confusion on the sidelines, right? Like if the players who are playing don't don't believe that everybody on the field, on the bench, uh, and in our staff and in our team bubble believes that the players on the field are the ones that need to be on the field, there is some energy that gets sucked out of the magic of the te- of, of any team, truly. Um, so I've, of course, you know, I decided to be a good teammate, uh, and I'm one of those kind of people that loves when I decide something, I decide I'm going to become the best at it. So I decided I was going to become the best bench player that ever played the bench in the whole wide world. And, you know, I do think that it mattered. And I do think that it is a philosophy, a leadership philosophy that people don't emphasize enough. I mean, I think you two could very easily wonder, okay, if I were to put myself on my own bench here at Skim, let me bench myself at Skim and put myself in what would be technically called the lowest paying job or the lowest job in your company. And if you can't find a way to still lead from that position, then you can't call yourself a good leader right now in the position that you're in. Because if you're not a good leader on the bench, then you cannot call yourself a good leader on the field. You're talking about being a strong leader and you're really known for creating team culture. And that story is a really great example of that. But you're also human and humans F up all the time. When a lot of things that you were dealing with personally and in darker periods of your life and you've been open about struggling with addiction and, you know, you were arrested for a DUI and, you know, you had real human moments. What was that like to know that you are a leader to so many, but also you too make mistakes and you too, you know, have things that you could be better at. How did you kind of reconcile that for yourself? Well, believe this or not, athletes have a weird life. As a professional athlete, when you're playing for your country, you know, you have managers and agents and lawyers, and it is very easy to get sucked into that life of selfishness, of where every single thing in your life and in your mindset revolves around you. Like the world literally is operating around your bullshit. And 
I think that it was really easy for me at the time to kind of get really sucked into that way of being to that mindset because of what I was going through in my personal life. I was going through divorce. I was retiring from this thing that I identified as the soccer player for my whole life. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do in my retirement. I did know that I didn't make enough money playing soccer to just retire like most male athletes can, at least most male athletes that are as accomplished as I was throughout my playing days. And I think that one of the things as that athlete, that that selfishness that was inside of me that I was operating around was that I felt like I had to have a perception of perfection because of this representation of the United States, because of the standard that we, our national teams, hold ourselves to. There was so much pressure to be perfect. So when I did get a, get pulled over and get arrested for that DUI, it was the the, the hardest and most embarrassing and shameful thing that has ever happened in my life, but it was the most important and best thing that has ever happened in my life because, you know, I'm not a person that will ever be the victim in a situation. I put my stupid ass in that position. I made the dumbass decision to get behind that wheel. But what not a lot of people know about is that I was really personally suffering internally. I was struggling with alcohol. I was struggling with prescription drugs. I was struggling with this idea of not knowing who the hell I was. So as horrible as that moment was for me and as shameful and as embarrassing as it was to see my name on ESPN ticker, it was like the exact thing that was needed for the lights of that addiction life that I was living to get shut off. A lot of people have to go through AA and I went through my own personal recovery process. Let me tell you, when you get publicly shamed for something like that, that was a real, real eye opener. And, you know, I think that talking about it is something that's really important because all of us try to pretty up our lives for other people's enjoyment, right? It's Instagrammable. It's what you put on your social media, Facebook platforms. And quite frankly, it's all, it's all bullshit, right? For me, I was really suffering silently and this was an opportunity for me to heal. Honestly, that DOI saved my life. I, I think that if I was not caught that night, I, I really don't know what would have happened to my life. And it's the best thing for me. So I'm just, I'm grateful that I was able to make a, a big turnaround and then not be taken down by the shame of it. Not let the shame of that choice take me down, but in fact, inspire me to move forward. I want to switch gears and start talking about what your life has looked like most recently. So you retire and it kind of starts with this pivotal moment at the ESPYs. Talk to us about what that was like. Yeah. So, you know, the ESPN called and uh, they decided they were going to give, they were going to award me with two other famous professional athletes who were retiring in 2016 with um, what they call the SP Icon Award. And what the SPs are, if you don't know, it's basically like a nationally televised award show for athletes. It's like the Oscars, but for athletes. So there I was on stage about to get this award and I'm standing in between Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant, may he rest in peace. And, you know, this moment for me was essentially supposed to be like the bookend. This is one of the biggest awards I will get in my life. I'm being awarded with two of the most legendary athletes of all time. They happen to be men. I happen to be a woman. 
And so I'm, I'm having this feeling of like gratitude of like, wow, like here we are women, we've finally made it, right? And so that gratitude turned into rage. I know that that might be a weird jump, especially for this night that's supposed to be the best night of my life. But as we were walking off stage, like something totally different happened inside of me. And I was like, wait, why am I angry all of a sudden? Why am I so upset? And I got back to my hotel room that night and I realized that night that while the three of us walked off stage getting the same award for the same work, same blood, same sweat that we needed to expend during our career, I realized the three of us were walking into three very different retirements. You know, their biggest concerns were how they were going to invest their hundreds of millions of dollars they collectively earned. And my concern was how I was going to find a job to be able to pay my mortgage. Now that gap felt a little bit wrong <laughs> to me. And I started stewing in this, this hotel room. I was like, how could this have happened? You know, I fancied myself. I was like a little famous at the time. You're, you're a big deal. We were, yeah, I felt like a big deal. I felt like, wow, you know, how could this be so vastly different retirements that we're about to walk into? Um, and so I promised myself two things that night. One, I was going to make sure that Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, and Crystal Dunn, women that are currently playing on the national team, would never share this experience that I had with me. And then number two, one of the bigger, more important realizations was that because I fancied myself that if this was happening to me, then this has to be happening to every woman in every industry, in every city, in every state, in every country in the world. And so that has kind of been the bedrock and, and the platform and the foundation of what I've built my retirement around and above. It's that moment, you know, my wife Glennon would call it the, the bathroom floor moment for me where I had to get real with what was going on. And I've dedicated my retirement since then to bettering women's rights, not just in sport, but beyond, because I believe that the disparities and the gaps are even bigger and more life-threatening in the corporate world. You know, and if we don't have enough women sitting at leadership positions and leadership tables, then the products that those companies are creating that go out into the world that define and structure our world are going to be skewed towards males forever. So we have to get more women in leadership positions at every single company in our world. Um, and so that's kind of been really great job security because I know that every single company in the world, maybe not yours, is very skewed towards males uh, in, in leadership positions. And um, that's just what I've been up to. So yeah, hard night. But like I said, I'm not going to be the victim. You can't talk about the movement for equal pay without talking about women's soccer. The U.S. women's national team has been on the forefront for the fight for equal pay. And there was a lawsuit filed against FIFA in 2014. And then the lawsuit that the team filed last year against U.S. soccer. I think what was so fascinating to watch is how you guys did it. It seemed to be so united and as a team effort. We get a lot of questions around negotiation. What did you learn from those experiences? One of the things that I've learned from just playing on our women's national team, because even though these lawsuits are kind of at the forefront, I think that you have to think more critically and, and detailed specific about 
why these lawsuits are even possible. So for the whole of our women's national team, you're talking about some of the most badass women who are not only just badass on the field, but they're also women to um, be reckoned with off the field. But the thing that I learned from the very beginning as a young national team player is that the only reason why our women's national team is the highest paid team women's sport in the world is because of their unity, is their collective ability to stick together when they would go through contract negotiations with U.S. soccer. That and, of course, Title IX and Equal Rights uh, Amendment, those things help, right? When I think back to all of the time that we had to go through contract negotiations with U.S. soccer, we were always a united front. Now, does that mean we all agreed uh, on everything that came across the table? No, we had to have really hard discussions. We had to have really honest and open conversation around some of this stuff. But we, for the most part, were very democratic and listened and heard everybody um, and then made the best decision as a whole and then collectively would agree or not agree to certain stipulations of negotiations. That has been the standard for the entirety of the women's national team. And I think when you look at the specifics of these lawsuits, you have to understand that when you are trying to create precedent in law, those are harder battles to win. And getting the court of public opinion is one thing. And that's been oftentimes what our women's national team has relied very heavily on. But now we have what's called legitimate resources to see that our women's national team is actually earning more money than our men's national team. Before it was like, come on, you, we deserve to be paid for what we are worth because we win. And now our women's national team is like, hey, listen, we deserve to be paid for what we're worth because we've earned it financially. And here are the numbers. So it's just going to be a matter of time before we can truly say that our women's national team is now being treated fairly. It's it's really tough when you are fighting all of these battles all and you're fighting uphill every time and you're clawing for every cent, you know, because they're saying, well, why aren't you grateful? And you're like, look, I've just spent we've just spent the last 40 years as athletes being grateful because of Title IX. But now, like now that we're actually a viable company and and we are literally making millions of dollars for U.S. soccer, like I think it's about time that we pay are paid fairly. Um, so, you know, I don't have answers to how fast or slow. But what I do know to be true for women, women especially, is that you have to connect with each other in order. And you have to talk about stuff openly. You have to connect and communicate what each of you are getting paid. Um, that's one of the things that I think is so forward thinking with our national team. Everybody knows how much you're getting paid. It's not a secret. The secrets are the things that the machine is trying to keep. Because if we all knew, right, what everybody was getting paid, 
then everybody would want to raise, rightfully so, right? I'm listening to you and what you're saying is so applicable to kind of the reckoning that everybody is having largely in their workplaces, whether it's about confronting sexism or pay inequality or racism or homophobia or transphobia. And, you know, when I hear what you're saying and like the tactical takeaway for those listening is finding your support system to share. Totally. You need your people and you need your people in all different parts of your company. You know, I understand businesses are in place to make money. Like that's the whole point of those companies. But we are, as a society, are getting more funneled towards wanting to make sure that we're doing right things with our company, that we're not just in it for capital gain. Look, I like making money more than most people. But the truth is, is if you're not in a position in your business to make sure that things are as fair as possible and that you're doing some sort of good, right? Uh, for not just your employees, but your specific company itself and the vision and the mission statement is actually doing, trying to make the world better on some level, your company's not gonna last for very long. I, I am a, a fan of transparency, right? I'm a fan of transparency. I believe that when your employee comes to work, and they know that they are being treated fairly and they're being treated maybe even a little bit better than fairly. They're gonna come to work passionate and they're gonna invest and they're going to invest a little bit more than maybe they would have otherwise. Um, you know, the difference between work and a job is so big, right? You don't want your, your employees thinking that they gotta go to, go to their job. You want them to go to work. Work is good. Work is important. Work is part of like what feeds our soul on like a cellular level. Like, and work is soul fulfilling where job is like soul crushing. So I don't know. Take it or leave it. I'll take it. <laughs> it's, it's time for our last segment, our lightning round. I love lightning rounds. Last TV show you streamed or binge watched? Nashville. Uh, morning person or night owl? I'm a morning person, but Glennon can't fall asleep because I breathe loudly slash snore. So I have to I have to stay awake a little bit longer than her to give her a little bit of head start. We have that rule in my house too. What's the most annoying thing Glennon does at home? She leaves the ca- cabinet doors open. <gasps> I, I hate that. That is one Glennon of my pet Doyle. peeves. Yeah. Where do you keep your gold medals? In my underwear drawer. No, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I mean, where else are you going to put it? Like, I don't know. I'd wear, I'd wear mine every day. I know, but the, the novelty wears off. Let me just tell you that. Will you su- display it in your house? No, because it's like the most precious thing of precious. So what happens if somebody comes in and snipes it? Of all of the awards, trophies, all the things you've ever gotten, which one means the most? My wedding rings. Oh, that's really nice. Oh, Danielle's going to kill me, but we're going to end this with, you're going to help me be like, make a sales pitch. I love the Olympics more than oh, anything no, in the world. This is embarrassing. Danielle, polar opposite, does not get what I love. Can you please sell Danielle the, on the Olympics? Okay, Danielle, I would like to know what the most important moment of your life has been. Well, two, when we started the skim. Okay. And I'm also about to have a baby. <gasps> okay, great. That's Perfect. Yeah. Right. So let's go with the skim one. Mm-hmm. That wasn't just a moment that just popped up, right? It wasn't like, mm-hmm. poof, this just came up. Like you both spent how many freaking hours 
and how much stress and how much money and how much investment, how much of your soul did you expend to get to that one moment for the luck to everything to like come together, right? I'm, I'm literally giving myself the chills. I know. I'm like about to cry. <laughs> Danielle's gonna kill me. <laughs> this feels cruel. This is it. That was like your Olympic moment. Unfortunately, your moment wasn't on television, right? Like yeah. it wasn't. So, so as an Olympian, when you watch this stuff growing up, you're like, oh yeah, one day. Mm-hmm. Like when you are of the small percentage of the small percentage of the small percentage that get the chance to have this moment, to have a life altering experience, right? There is nothing more magical than putting everything on the line for something with no guarantee that it's gonna work. And it's exactly what you did with Skim. It's exactly what people do when they're trying to start families. It's exactly what Olympians do. They put their whole mind, body, and spirit into this one experience. I'm just like giving you a silence and an ovation, okay, but I'm like, hey, I, I think that might've done it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Abby. Yes, you're Okay, welcome. very last question. Who should we have on the show? Ooh, a woman named Dr. Yaba Blay that I was able to, we did this thing a couple weeks ago called Share the Mic Now, where white women with a fairly big following on uh, IG turned over our passwords for IG. And I turned my, my platform over to Dr. Yaba Blay. And she's amazing. She is not only revered in her community, but has, she's got all the letters in front of her name and behind her name, has all of the accolades and is really truly one of the biggest and brightest teachers for racial justice in this country. If you could introduce us. Totally. Okay. Abby, Abby, thank you so much. You guys are great. Hi everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Sam Rudolph. I am the co-founder and CEO of Babyation. Babyation is unapologetically for moms. We devise products and tools to help make make parents' lives easier. That is literally our entire goal. And our first product is a breast pump that is quiet, discreet, and smart. We are based in St. Louis, Missouri. So I think everyone has been affected by COVID-19 in one way or another. So for me to say it hasn't been at all would be completely disingenuous. At the same time, though, we're in the manufacturing process. So given that we're pre-revenue, it's not like we've seen a big drop off in revenue or something like that. And we're also really lucky Um, as lucky as one can be in a pandemic, because breast pumps are medical devices, which means that everyone we work with is in the medical side on the uh, manufacturing piece of this. So everyone has been considered essential. So for the most part, we've been able to keep things on track. What I'd really kind of love to talk about is how this impacts female-founded businesses in general, because that's something I'm incredibly passionate about. And if going into all of this in a really good economy, we're getting less than 3% of funding, what is this going to look like in six months? And, and that's something that I, I really think about and I care about. Um, and, and I kind of want to jump up and down and wave my arms about as much as I can, because I, I think that we all have a responsibility to make sure that women aren't losing some really hard fought ground on this. 
for a business like ours, community is is absolutely essential. You know, it can be as simple and as basic as following us and liking what we do on Instagram and other social channels. We can't be unapologetically for moms if we're not serving our moms in the way that they want. So we've been able to to really start to build a good community. And I think even right now that that's even become more important because as moms are home and trapped with our children and more stressed and trying to work and trying to do it all, we need outlets more than ever. So if there's something that we can be doing better or should be doing better or things that you want to hear from us, that's something we'd love to hear from you and, and is probably on the easier side. Next, we, we sell onesies that talk about uh, our mama's milk onesies, and we donate a portion of those to charity. Uh, so if you're looking for a great baby gift, that's another way. And then we're, you know, like I said earlier, we're in the manufacturing process trying to get our breast pump to market. So if you're in need of a breast pump, we have a reservation list where you can join our wait list and make sure that you get some of the first production run. And then beyond that, if you're not ready for a breast pump, just keep following us for if you are and have the opportunity to buy a breast pump with some of the latest in technology. You know, I could be on a Zoom call right now pumping and it's so quiet and so discreet that you would never know what I was doing. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 